Please be seated. Good evening. It's great to see you this evening. Thank you so much for being with us in worship. If you have a Bible, uh, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Obadiah. For some of you, let me suggest that the best way to get there is to look in the index, find the page number, take your time to look it up. It's probably just one page long and it sticks together around those other people with unusual names to us. And so it's not the easiest book to find. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. There's just 21 verses and we'll read them all. Before we read together, let me just say this by way of introduction to the reading. Many of you are familiar with the fact that God chose a man called Abraham, promised him that he would be the father of many nations, and gave this particular promise to him. Everyone who blesses you I will bless. Everyone who curses you, I will curse. And Abraham had a son called Isaac. Miraculously, the provision of God. And Isaac, in turn, married a lady called Rebekah. And they had twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob went to war with each other as twins in the womb. And spent most of their lives as brothers, warring with one another. And the bad blood that was between them continued for generations and generations to come. Esau and all of his descendants grew into a nation called Edom. Jacob and his descendants grew into a nation called Israel. The book of Obadiah is written as a statement of the judgment of God on the nation of Edom because they cursed Israel. They cursed the descendants of Abraham. And at a time when Israel was under threat and eventually taken captive, Edom stood by and mocked them. They looted them. They actually opposed them, stopped those who were fleeing their oppressors and handed them over. And what I'm about to read is a statement of God's judgment on them. Let me read from Obadiah 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. 
The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut off in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance, and the house of Jacob will possess its possessions. The house of Jacob will be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. The people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. The company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. And the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let me make a couple of observations before I come to the particular point that I want to make. 
it is now hundreds of years since God made a promise to Abraham. Those who bless you I will bless. And those who curse you I will curse. Yet God looks at a nation that has actually stood by, watched Israel's downfall, mocked it, and played a part in it. As if they had been one of the oppressors themselves. And God says, your time's coming. It's a nation that has significance in the world at that time. And God says, you are in the pride of your heart, you're deceived. You think you cannot be brought down. I will bring you down. I'm going to say something that some of you will have heard me say before. One of the difficulties with God is that God believes He is God. Tonight, God believes He is God. God believes He reigns in the affairs of men. God believes that He's working out His purpose in the world. God is convinced about His own purpose, His own will. God's convinced that He is utterly sovereign, that nobody can stand against Him. God is convinced that He will do what He will do and that He will fulfill His word. Now I understand that not everybody in the world is convinced that God is God. And that some people tonight don't believe that God is God. That really doesn't matter. Because God is God tonight and God does what God wills. God is in control. He's in control of nations. He's in control of the affairs of men. Syria, Russia, Iran, the nations of the world are not in some terrible, out-of-control situation where God has got no idea where this is going on, where this is going to end. God will bring good out of it all. He will accomplish His purpose. He will elevate the name of His Son, Jesus, and He will bring men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to Himself. God's working in the world. And He knows exactly what He's doing. Tonight, He believes He's God. And one of the things of this account of Obadiah is the clarity with which God is convinced, even though you think you're untouchable, I'm God and I'm going to do it. And that's the situation that we live in. Tonight you can fight with God, you can debate with God whether he's right or wrong, but he's going to do what he wants to do. He's not asking for permission. He's not asking for acceptance. He's looking for people who recognize him as God and are willing to follow him. What he had said to Abraham, he is going to fulfill. Those who have cursed you, I will curse. And so trouble is coming. And the most of the prophecy of Obadiah, short though it is, is a statement of the detailed judgment of God that is going to come upon the people of Edom. But what I want to turn your attention to particularly this evening is verse 17. Because verse 17 says, if I can find it with these glasses. But the house on Mount Zion 
Am I looking at the right verse? Takes the glasses off. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its possessions. There is a principle that's here. When God punishes his enemies, he blesses his children. The statement of punishment on Edom that is going to be utterly destroyed, God says, but on the mountain of Zion, the people of Israel will be brought back and everything they were promised, they will take possession of the land that was given to them. Though they're in captivity now, though for a while they were taken apart from what had been promised, they are going to possess their possessions. The punishment of God on Edom is going to open the way for the people of God to take hold of what it is He's promised them. When I say that's a principle, on the night, the worst night in Egypt's history, when the firstborn is being slaughtered, the people of Egypt are giving their gold, their silver, and their jewelry to Israel, and God is taking Israel out of 430 years of slavery and oppression in Egypt. What was an awful night for Egypt was an excellent night for Israel. When Israel comes to the Red Sea, what is an awful night for Egypt? When the water that is walled up on either side comes back over the pursuing armies of Egypt, destroying them all and killing them, is the same thing that God uses to provide a way of escape for Israel to take them to the land that He has promised them. The punishment of God on one group of people is part of His pathway and purpose for His chosen people. When Israel faced the Amalekites, the destruction of the Amalekites by God is actually a means of peace, security, and safety for the nation of Israel. When the walls of Jericho come down and the people in that city are routed, the punishment of God on them is the blessing of God for Israel as they begin to go in and take possession of what God had promised to them. You see, again and again, there's a principle in Scripture. So much so, it's actually in the words that Jesus read from in the scroll of Isaiah that's recorded in Luke 4 and verse 18. Because the words of Isaiah are these. This is the year of the favor of the Lord. But it's also the day of the vengeance of our God. It's a year of favor for people who will follow God, who are looking to Him. The blessing of God is going to come upon their life. But for those who oppose God, for the enemies of God, it's going to be a day of vengeance of God. The two things go together. 
Christians look with great hope to a glorious day. A trumpet will sound, the sky will split, and the King will come in all of His glory. We're going to be caught up with Him in the air. We're going to have a body that is transformed to be like His glorious body. We're going to receive an eternal reward, and we're going to live and reign with Him forever. It is the blessed, the glorious hope of Christian faith that we look forward to this great and glorious day of the appearing of the King. It's not a great and glorious day for those who oppose God. It's a day of darkness and a day of terror. And tonight, if you do not know whose side you are on, let me tell you, there is a glorious day coming. And it's sooner than it has ever been when Christ will come in glory for His people. But if you are not ready to meet Him, it will not be a glorious day. It will not be a day of eternal reward. It will not be a day when God is waiting to open His arms to bless you. It will be a day when He judges you for having rejected His Son, your Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the principle of the Scripture is those two things run together all of the time. And so, the statement in verse 17 that says, But on Mount Zion will be deliverance and holiness, and the people of Jacob will possess their possessions. That has found its literal fulfillment When Israel was brought back out of captivity, when Edom was overrun and destroyed according to the promise of God, and Israel began to take possession of the land that God had promised it. But it's the principle that I want to speak to you about for these next few minutes this evening, because the principle of God punishing His enemies in order to bless his children, runs like this as we understand it. Christ came to the cross to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians tells us that in the cross, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. He destroyed the works of darkness. He overcame death and hell through the cross. And then this is how it's described to us in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 4 and verse 8. It says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive in his train, and he gave gifts to men. In ancient battles, the way in which they demonstrated the victory that they had won was that they had a victory parade following the battle. There wasn't 24-7 news. There wasn't embedded journalists. They weren't looking at digital images of laser-guided missiles and the destruction they'd caused. How did a nation know that they had been victorious in war? And the strongest, the greatest, the most glorious of the enemies were brought in chains in a victory procession. 
and some of the spoils of war, the greatest artworks, the greatest jewelry was brought and it was paraded. And some of the things that were particular to that nation, and so if they had been somewhere where there were elephants and rhinoceroses, suddenly in the middle of Rome or somewhere else, you had these strange animals paraded through the streets. As an illustration to all the people, everything that they have, we've taken. It's ours. A victory procession was run through the streets so the people could recognize that a complete and a total victory had been won. In Ephesians 4 and verse 8, when Jesus came to judge Satan in the cross of Christ, when he came to destroy the works of the enemy, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive in a victory procession through heaven on his way to be being crowned king of kings and lord of lords he led them captive and he gave gifts to men if I can say it in a way that's more familiar to many of you who are Christians in the words of Ephesians chapter 1 praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That is, for those of you who are friends of God tonight, for those of you who are followers of Christ, here's your position. He has sought to win victory over his enemies to judge them in order to bless you. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing that there is in Christ. When God judges His enemies to bless you, He wants you to possess your possessions. He wants you to take hold of every spiritual blessing that is yours in Christ. There are times in our lives for one reason or another when we have possessions that we really haven't fully taken hold of. Sometimes that might look as simple as the parcel force card on the doormat to say that they've been to deliver your parcel, but you weren't there. You've been waiting with expectation for it, and you look at the card and you realize you're not able to go until four o'clock tomorrow when the And you have to wait and wait. You have a possession. You've paid for it. It's yours. But you can't go and get it until a particular time. You want to possess your possession, but right now you don't have it. Maybe you've bought a new car. You've signed the contract. You've done the paperwork. You've transferred the money. And you're picking it up on Saturday. But you have to wait and wait. And here is this particular possession. It's yours but you haven't got it yet and you have to wait till you possess that possession. Perhaps in another way, I feel something like that with a couple of situations we have in Teen Challenge. Maybe 18 months ago, two years ago, we bought a 33-bedroomed hotel. We've been doing some refurbishment work on it. Its purpose for us is to open it for ladies who need help and support and to offer them a place where they can come to and find freedom and deliverance in Jesus Christ. 
Right now, it's not doing that because until I have all of the planning permission and everything in place, I can't really possess that possession. There's a sense in which I own it, but for the purpose for which I want to own it, I can't make full use of it. And the frustration is significant. In some ways or others, you will recognize in life there are times, sometimes because others come in and take what belongs to us, but it's difficult to possess our possessions. The simple point that I want to bring to you tonight, and I'm going to close in these next few minutes, and it's this. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing that there is in Christ. Christ went to great lengths to destroy the work of the enemy so that you could have these spiritual blessings in Christ. But it's up to you to possess your possessions. It's up to you to take hold fully of what he's given you. We appropriate them by faith. We appropriate them because we recognize we have a right to them. They are ours. What do I mean? Well, I mean, for example, one of the promises of the Scripture is that we would have peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. Part of what Christ has accomplished for me in his victory in the cross is so that I can live with a peace that passes understanding. So that in the storms, in the challenges, in the most difficult times of life, I'm not overwhelmed by anxiety. It doesn't make sense. It's beyond understanding. But I have a right to be, have my heart and mind guarded in Christ. He promised me his peace. Tonight I want to say, if you're living in a situation or circumstance where there's turmoil and anxiety, you have a right to be at peace. That's part of the spiritual blessing that he accomplished for you in the cross. But you need to take hold of it. You need to stand on the promise of God. You need to say, this is my right. I'm going to possess my possession. He won this for me. One of the things about this Christian life is it's meant to have fullness of joy. That's part of the spiritual blessings that there are for us in Christ. Jesus says, I'm saying these things while I'm in with you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Peter talks about it as joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. It's how Jesus described the Christian life. I have come so that you might have life and life in all of its fullness. Let me be honest with you tonight. And I'm asking you, will you be honest with yourself? Do you feel that what you're living with is life in all its fullness? I'm not asking, is it free from challenge? Is it free from difficulty? But is it fulfilling? Is there joy in it? Because that's the promise of God to you. And for one reason or another, that might have been robbed for you, or you might feel, and here's one of the problems that we have at times. We feel, you know, I don't really have a right to that. I'm almost just glad I'm saved. I was a filthy, rotten sinner. And I'm glad that God stretched out in his grace to me and he has dealt with my sin. But I don't deserve any more than that. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing that there is in Christ. It's all yours. He wants you to take possession 
of your possessions. He wants you to possess your inheritance. You have a right to it. The number of times in 39 years as a Christian, I have watched Christians come to ask God for more power. The sense is that they need more power in their lives. One of the things that I understand that you have been blessed with is the incomparably great power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you. Tonight, you don't need more power, but you do need to take possession of the power that has been made available to you. The power that is the working of His mighty strength when He raised Jesus from the dead. Paul prays for the Ephesian church that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened so they would see what they've got. But sometimes we have to take possession of it. And you see, at times it takes a firm grasp, a real commitment to possess your possession. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm only me. I'm only human. After all. Seriously? You haven't been made a partaker of the divine nature? You've been given His exceedingly great and precious promises so that you could be made a partaker of the divine nature? His power is at work in you. Does that mean you're just human? No, you're much more than human. You have much more capacity than you understand that you have. But there's a sense in which the church has to rise and begin to take possession of our possessions. Apparently, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He wants to impart strength to me. But if I spent my time telling myself that I'll never do it, I'll never make it, why would I possess my possessions? And Christians are living with statements of Scripture that tell them they're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, that joy unspeakable should be theirs, that peace that passes understanding, yet the, the reality of the experience isn't like that. Why not? Because we need to possess our possessions. We need to say, Christ has won this for me and by faith I am taking hold of what He has done for me. I will not live at some subsistence level of Christianity. I want to possess my possessions. In numerous ways that's expressed the number of people who live in fear. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear but of love of power of a sound mind where am I going to live at? will I allow an enemy to intimidate me to rob me of what God has won for him when he's been routed and defeated or will I recognize there's more for me in Christ what I want to urge you tonight is press into all that is yours. Take hold of it. Don't settle for less. You might have to battle for some of it. You might have to wrestle with some of your own thought patterns. You might have to wrestle with some of the stuff from your past. You will have to wrestle with accusations that come from an enemy that tell you you've no right to it and you don't deserve it. He's a liar. 
He's a liar from the beginning. But let me try to conclude quickly. You know you've been blessed in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing that there is in Christ. I won't go through all that that means, but I want to urge you, possess your possessions. But will you think with me for a few moments this evening about the prodigals, those who surrendered their life to Christ and somehow in one way or another have been distracted or derailed in their walk with God and metaphorically tonight they're sitting in the pig pen. They have the right to everything that's in Father's house. The ring, the robe, the sandals, they're all there waiting. But they don't believe they have a right to possess their possessions. They think they've missed it. They think they've stepped out of the purpose of God and they can't ever take hold again of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of them. Do the prodigals tonight deserve to live in a lie? Or do they deserve to have a revelation that you have every right to rise out of the pig pan of your circumstances, out of the poverty of your uh, spiritual barrenness, wherever that is, and come back home to everything Father had for you? There's an enemy that's lying to them. And I want to say to you, as the people of God here, you know some of those prodigals. Go and tell them they have a right to come and get their inheritance. They have a right to come back to Father's house and take hold of everything Father took hold of them for. They don't have to stay out there in the darkness. They don't have to be outcasts from the family. They don't deserve to live on the margins anymore. They have a right to come home. And you need to go and help them come home. Because you understand from what I'm saying tonight, they have a right to possess their possessions. It's there in Father's house waiting for them. They have a right to have the Father run, throw his arms around them, embrace them, and cause them to feel utterly loved and secure once again. They have a right to have the terror that has gripped their hearts taken from them. And they have a right to feel the security and the comfort of what it is to be loved by God. Please pray for them and please tell them. The final thing I want to say to you this evening is in the verses that follow verse 17. It begins to talk in some detail about how Jacob will begin to possess the land of their enemies. How they'll go to particular places and they'll push their enemies aside and they'll take the land that God has set for them. And I want to say this to you with simple clarity. The Word of God makes a declaration, Revelation 11 and 15. The kingdom of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. The kingdom of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. There is no nation tonight that is outside the scope of the uh, pervasive purpose of God to come and bring His kingdom, to lift men and women out of brokenness, out of shame, out of heartache, out of pain, to forgive the sins 
to lift people and to set them on the rock Christ Jesus, to give them a hope and a future in every nation of the earth tonight. God wants to come. He wants to possess the possession that is. In Psalm 2, a messianic psalm, Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the end of the earth as your reward. We're listening to all sorts of people talking about the irrelevance of the church, the insignificance of the church, the outdatedness, the... uh, Whatever it is, suddenly apparently the church has no relevance to our society. There are greater ideologies, there's greater wisdom, there's greater intellects that are taking hold of the nations of the world. And still, the truth of the matter is, every one of them belongs to Him. And it's time for the church to have an understanding. We need to possess our possessions. How are those nations meant to hear? We're meant to tell them. How are they meant to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? People of God with a radical commitment to serve Him, whether they live or die, go in spite of the freedom of the absence of it. Go into places of persecution and they lift high the name of Jesus. They declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. They make the declaration that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And we need to take possession because the church is in the world to possess the nations of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just going to happen. And it is not sufficient for us to sit back And listen to the mocking voice of an enemy that says you've got no real relevance. You've got no real purpose. The church needs to rise and possess its possessions. We need to do it in our own lives. We need to do it for our own families. But we need to do it on behalf of the prodigals. We need to do it for the nations. Stuart and the guys are going to come back and lead us in worship. We've been focusing on the faithfulness and on the promises of God. We're going to continue to do that for the next few minutes. And I want some of you to engage significantly with God in these moments. In the privacy of your own heart, some of you need to begin to possess your possessions. Some of you need to start to go to war to take hold of what is rightfully yours in Christ. Some of you need to say enough. I am not living in this turmoil and with this anxiety anxiety any longer. Some of you need to start saying, I am not living with this fear any longer. God did not give me a spirit of fear. Some of you are going to need to say, I want the freedom. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm sick of living a Christian life in bondage. It's time to have joy. It's time to have peace. Some of you need to begin to take hold of it. Let's rise and worship him as you begin to war.